Welcome to season two of the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. It's still irreverent. It's still weird. It's still the show that you love to tolerate. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. This is season two, episode number one, or episode 21, if you like to count into the chronology. I'm Kyle. I'm your host. Still, guys, what up? It's a good day. It's always a good day. Uh, Status update of my life. Everything is going quite well now. It's been a great deal of time since I've been able to say something like that. And I honestly don't know how to feel about it. I I graduated school. I passed my boards test. I was given a license to practice. And now I'm working and doing the thing that I want to do and learning the thing that I want to do. It's, it's crazy. I'm a 32-year-old weirdo with a podcast. And I honestly can't say when exactly the last time was that I truly felt like things were really going super well and working out. You know, the last probably 16, 17, 18 years of my life since I was uh, uh, old enough to to start driving, you know, when, when I truly looked at life, I guess more objectively looked at life more, uh, in, in a way where you step back, um, at that point, nothing really was, I mean, things were good. I, I, before I go any farther, I just want to say, obviously, I feel very blessed uh, to to do what I do. Um, it wasn't always the easiest path. Plenty of people have had a tougher go of it, but plenty of people have had an easier go of it. So, you know, it is what it is. You you are what you are. You do what you do. And for me, you know, the, the last half of my life, there have been a lot of great things happened, and there have just been a lot of really poor things that have happened as well, both because of my decisions and and some things um, without my control factored in. So this is literally the first time in my life, you know, since I was a teenager that I truly feel like things are are really on the right track. So uh, I I come to you all, I come to you all with with great tidings, with, with great attitude, with great enthusiasm for the future. And it's, it's, it's kind of uh, interesting that, you know, we unveil a new season of the show that I do as a new season or a new um, part of my life is, is you know, unveiled, so to speak. So like I said uh, uh, before on the uh, the last episode that we did, episode 20, I am going to not really necessarily change the format of the show, although you already heard at the top of the show with the theme song that I changed that for this season as well. And, um, you know, the, the the format of the show is going to sort of morph a little bit. We're going to do a very similar show to what we did. Um, if you are a new listener, welcome. Uh, if you go back to the back catalog, you will probably listen to a very similar 
or nearly indistinguishable show as the one you are about to hear. I really wanted to emphasize sort of making it like the first season of this show was like old television, right? You had 20 episodes of the show. Uh, it kind of skipped all over the place. For you know, for the most part, um, nothing was related in those episodes. The only thing that we sort of carried over that even even showed you that this was still the same series was you know me being the person talking in uh, general little bits that we would always do. There always be the fact of the week in, in one form or another. There'd be the theme song, all this stuff that that told you that hey, this is the same show. But we went so far back and forth, up and down and left and right with our topics that it really nothing really related to the, the thing before it. I just, you know, sort of thought, hey, this is interesting. This is what we're going to talk about this week. Hey, this is interesting. This is what we're going to talk about this week. And we never really got this some manner of coherence that I, I know was missing from the show, but it really didn't bug me that much, you know. And the fact that the show was being recorded while I was still in school and, and doing testing and studying all that stuff, really it was about just making a show as quick as I could and and doing the best I could. I didn't want to give you guys uh, an inferior product, and if you think that that's what happened, then I apologize. Uh, I do the best I can with the with the resources I have, but I I really wanted the show to sort of gel together a little bit better than it had been, and... You know, we have lots of stuff upcoming uh, with the show and, and how we're going to make it do. We're, we are going to introduce guests on the show when I'm able to acquire, you know, the the, 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 the equipment and the ability to do so to make a, you know, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to jump into that particular part of the show way too quickly because going from a single, you know, single voiced podcast is you know, a single voice podcast to uh, something even with one guest is a huge jump. You know, it's it's super easy. Anyone can do what I'm doing right now. Anyone can do it. And honestly, whenever I hear a podcast that sucks and sounds terrible, I don't even understand. Like literally, I am doing nothing special. And I don't think my podcast is like out of this world amazing in terms of content and, and sound quality and stuff, but it's not terrible either. And and honestly, anybody can do what I'm doing now. The tough part is taking that and turning it into a type of show where it's me and somebody else. So that stuff is coming in the future, but I still have to figure out, you know, the the, the rest of my technology situation. I have to figure out um, how I'm going to implement that into the bones of the show but until then we are going to start to make the show more like a set of mini series so season two of the knowledge from the couch podcast is going to be like a sort of a four or five episode you know pod at a time so we'll do three four or five episodes of a certain theme um we may even do multi-part episodes of a single you know thing or person or whatever and stretch that out over uh, one of these episode pods. So this month, February, we are going to do different episodes about American black history. Since it is Black History Month, uh, uh, we do celebrate black history year-round. 
But February is also a special time because that is where it is brought to the forefront. And I think that my podcast, you know, I feel like I personally have a have a duty, have a uh, an obligation to bring that stuff forward because there are so many great stories to tell. And I don't think, you know, those stories should go untold by anyone. So today's episode, episode number one of our second season, is about the Harlem Hellfighters. So without further ado, guys, let's get straight into that episode. Season two, episode one, Harlem Hellfighters. It's amazing to think that even a hundred years ago, and we are we are nearing the the one hundredth anniversary of the end of the Great War or the end of World War One, whichever way you prefer to remember it. And it, it's interesting to think that even then, in nineteen seventeen into nineteen eighteen, when this regiment was being formed uh, in the United States that there was still this just absolutely awful, segregated, racist attitude. Now, for my listeners, my students of history, my 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 woke folk, my people who understand what's going on, this is not as surprising. Um, you know, things like Brown versus the Board of Education didn't happen until the 1950s and segregation before that time was was very widespread um not nearly as much in some places as others but segregation was not necessarily frowned upon and definitely was not illegal even in the early 20th century really not all that long ago i wouldn't call it necessary necessarily contemporary with us these days but at the same time this wasn't the 1400s. This wasn't the 15 or 1600s. This is the 1900s. This is very, very recently. You know, most of us will probably have either grandparents or great-grandparents that were alive and kicking during the time that this was going on. And it's crazy to think that even at this point, even with the world embroiled in this world war, this great war, this war to end all wars. Nobody ever seen anything like it. That despite all of that, despite the fact that we were seeing something that has never been seen before, we still couldn't put it past each other to be discriminatory and to be people who wanted to segregate. You know, it was like you see this awful thing happening, but for some reason, you got to keep with the old ways because for some weird weird reason even if everything else is crazy and everything else changes you gotta stick with your old shit for some reason so when you look at the Harlem Hellfighters and we're talking about the 369th Infantry Regiment of the American Expeditionary Force to Europe the 369th Regiment also known as the Harlem Hellfighters 
was the first all African American. Uh, it was a National Guard troop before it became a uh, a branch of the uh, the AEF, the Expeditionary Force, to Europe during World War One, and it was made up primarily of young men who had volunteered from Harlem in New York. Now, obviously, there were other people who were from different parts of the country. There were even some Puerto Ricans as part of the Harlem Hellfighters, but the vast majority of these young men were young black men from Harlem in New York City. And interestingly enough, the 369th Infantry name was a low-key insult from those in charge of naming their unit. They were the uh, the 15th National Guard unit in New York before they were renamed the 369th for their role in the Expeditionary Force. Now, typically, the lower-numbered regiments were... Uh, res- reserved for uh, volunteer regiments. So anything a low number was somebody who was highly trained. They were a volunteer soldier. They were um, part of the professional military force. And then the higher your numbers went, typically those were where you started to put regiments full of conscripted folks. Conscripted meaning that they were drafted or they were pressed into service, however you like to see that. And the 369th, there was no regiment even near that high a number. And these guys were volunteers. These guys weren't drafted. These guys weren't pressed into service. These guys all volunteered for duty. So you could see, even at that point, right off the bat, they were incredibly and utterly disrespected. Nobody in the United States military thought that black men could or should fight alongside white soldiers. To the point that when they were sent over to Europe, they were actually, you know, most of these men thought, hey, we're going to Europe, we're going to go fight in the war, and and the United States didn't enter the war until 1917. So the war in Europe had been raging hard for the last three years, almost. So the United States finally breaks their neutrality and heads over to Europe with their forces, you know, to the great joy of 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 Britain and France and those who were fighting against the central powers of Germany mostly, you know, to replenish and give fresh fighting men to this effort, to this 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 grueling, awful war that had been going on for the last three years. And these men who who volunteered to be a part of the 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 369th Regiment thought that they were gonna go see combat and they were gonna go fight. The United States, the military of the United States, thought otherwise. Most of these men were pressed very quickly into labor duties. Things like unloading ships, things like digging trenches while they waited to see what they were going to do. Now, this was because very much this ultra-racist attitude, even though we just talked about the Massachusetts Regiment in the Civil War, and by the way... The Civil War happened in the 1860s, and World War I happened in the 19-teens. So only about 50 years had passed since the, since the Civil War to the First World War. And, you know, how quickly we forget, right? How very quickly we just shove aside 
the fact that many black men fought in the Civil War, not only bravely, but in a highly skilled manner that was easily as effective as any white soldier in that war. How quickly we forget. All of a sudden, a generation or two passes, and the men in charge of the United States military think, oh, these black guys, why would we ever want to have them fight in the war? They're, they're going to be useless. They, they, they'd never fight as good as, as our white soldiers would. So they conscripted them together, they put them together, and then they sent them over to Europe basically to be day laborers. And this, this was not taken well by the commander of the 369th, a white man named William Hayward, Colonel William Hayward. Now, he, he was one of the only white officers in the entirety of the United States Army that truly and utterly respected the men that served underneath him, in particular, these black men that served with him. And in turn, these black men respected Colonel Hayward as well. And Colonel Hayward pushed and pushed and pushed for his men to see active combat in the war. The American Expeditionary Force, the United States military didn't want anything to do with this notion at all. They they took these men in uh, uh, as volunteers in the United States and had absolutely no, you know, no notion to ever send them over into combat. You know, at at, at the point where there were pamphlets handed out by other regiments in the military. Um, whether or not these were sanctioned things or not is up for debate, but there were pamphlets handed out to Europeans, uh, basically warning them, warning in quotes, warning them about the 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 um, the tendencies, the 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 significant tendencies, and the subhuman level of these black soldiers, and that they were just going to be these these rapists and awful people when they got into these European countries. I mean, this was the shit that these guys were putting up with, but Colonel Hayward knew better, and these men who wanted to fight knew better, which is amazing to me, by the way, that after all of this shit, that these guys would still volunteer to fight for a country that did not want to fight for them. It was a country that didn't give a shit about these guys, yet they were still so patriotic and so proud of their nation and wanted so badly to fight against the tyranny and injustice of the German, you know, mobilized force in Europe that they still volunteered to fight and that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to fight. Unfortunately, they would never fight under the command of any American force. So is that the end of the story? That they just went over to Europe and threw barrels around and dug trenches? Is that it? That is absolutely not it. The Harlem Hellfighters, or the 369th Regiment, was actually assigned with Colonel Hayward to the French Army, where the French Army didn't hold any of these racist tendencies. They didn't hold this attitude that these men were inferior. They welcomed them in with open arms. And this may be sort of that that French tendency to sort of expand their banner and declare all people 
who were fighting alongside the French as almost honorary French themselves. I mean, the French have the most famous foreign legion, right? They have a legion of men who are from all different countries on Earth, including the United States, by the way, that fight for France. And these men are often promised, you know, citizenship and this and that, you know, benefits that Frenchmen, native Frenchmen, are getting. So you could argue that that attitude that allowed something like that to exist was extended, you know, in some way to these black men from the United States who were going to fight in the war, you know, alongside these French men. And honestly, also, the French were very hard up for people to come and replace the men that they had lost. Now, France had lost a great deal of people in World War One, especially at the beginning. By the point that the United States entered, the Allied forces had kind of figured out like what they were going to do, how they were going to fight this new modern war, and things had become this sort of stalemated nonsense of trench warfare. But at the very beginning of the war, you know, the French army was almost treated as if it was just a slightly more advanced version of Napoleon's army. You know, the the the, the Prussian war in the 1870s was still semi-fresh in the minds of those people uh, at the beginning of World War One who had fought in that war. So you, at the very beginning of the war, you saw Frenchmen especially running into battle, bright blue coats, cloth hats, you know, inferior weaponry lined up, and they were absolutely fucking destroyed, just blitzed by modern artillery and the machine gun. And very quickly, and unfortunately after a huge amount of human life wasted, the French figured out that this war had to be fought in a different way. Now, you know, fast forward to three years later as we meet then our story of the Harlem Hellfighters joining now the French army to go fight in the trenches near the end of World War One. France is always looking for new people to join them. They, they have been short on soldiers this entire war, and they didn't give a shit where they got more from. So it was a breath of absolute fresh air for the French army to take in these men that the American army apparently wanted nothing to do with. And all told, the Harlem Hellfighters with the French army spent 191 straight days in combat all the way up to Armistice Day in November of 1918. That is the longest of any American unit in that entire war. So yeah, the guys who couldn't fight alongside white soldiers in the American Expeditionary Force were the ones who spent the absolute longest in combat. The guys who were the fiercest fighters, the guys who fought the hardest were the guys that apparently no one in America wanted. So during their time as part of the French army, the Harlem Hellfighters, now I keep saying that term, where does that term come from? The Harlem Hellfighters, that name Hellfighters, was given to them by German soldiers 
on the other side of the trenches. The German soldiers were so afraid of how fierce and brutal and savage these guys were when it came to trench warfare and fighting and getting up close and personal that they nicknamed them the Hellfighters. They nicknamed these guys, you know, there's something so fucking cool as Hellfighters. And, you know, you, you, you attack Harlem on there and it, it's, it's, a, it's a home run. It's a hit. It works so well. These guys were so brutal when it came to the way that they executed combat, which is absolutely the way it should be during this time of war, that they were honored by the opposing side with the nickname the Harlem Hellfighters. Now, in particular, there is one really interesting story involving a couple of privates in the Harlem Hellfighter Regiment that sort of bolstered them into international fame. And this story involves two men by the names of Needham Roberts and Henry Johnson. Now, this is very typical, the way this story starts. It's a very typical fashion in, in, in trench warfare, the, the the way this story went. So trench warfare was this brutal, awful type of warfare where trenches were dug and it was many series of trenches, both uh, forward and backward and laterally as well. And you had you know troops on one side in their trenches, in their network of trenches and troops on the opposing side in their network of trenches and you you protected these trenches with things like barbed wire and stakes and traps and and this and that and the other thing. So it was this very um, stuck-in style of warfare. And it got to the point where, you know, a full, a full frontal, full-force attack was basically suicide. Like if you sent your guys over the top... And towards the enemy's trenches, you could basically, you know, guarantee that almost all of those men, if not all of them, were going to die. You know, so there are plenty of guys, plenty of, of lower ranking soldiers who are spending their times in the trenches that were told and screamed out to go over the top. And can you even imagine how horrifying those orders were, knowing that, you know, within the next minute or two, you were probably going to be killed brutally by a, a, a hail of bullets you know, into your body, and it was just awful. And because of this, trench warfare never really was like that. Very rarely were over-the-top orders made. Very rarely were there these huge, you know, stick-your-head-out gunfights. Mostly it was just, you know, this peppering back and forth and maybe, you know, the the occasional grenade here and there. You might have, like, some sort of offensive, uh, you know, flank maneuver, but it was this very dug-in sort of warfare where a lot of ground wasn't gained. So in order to combat this, you had these sort of almost special force type people. You know, this is really where you could actually say the first real special forces of the militaries of the world were developed. You know, guys who were above and beyond being just infantry soldiers, guys who were, you know, excellent snipers. And then guys who would become excellent counter-snipers as snipers had ruled the roost for a couple of years. Then you had guys develop counter-sniper measures. You had guys become expert trench fighters. Guys who would carry literal clubs with spikes 
into trenches, you know, just crazy people who would come in with, you know, 20 grenades strapped to them in a club and just clear out trenches. I mean, the, the tactics that developed with this are absolutely amazing, absolutely ridiculous. And to combat these particular trends, you would always have night watches, usually in foxholes, usually near either points of weakness or points of entry where you knew the enemy may come. So on this particular night, these two men, uh, Needham Roberts and Henry Johnson, were sitting in a foxhole and they were listening for German troops to, you know, make their move or do whatever they're going to do. Or they're basically just on watch. I probably honestly hoping nothing was going to happen to them. Well, unfortunately, something does happen to them. So they're sitting there and they're waiting. They're just hanging out. And all of a sudden they hear kind of a rustling in the bushes. And this sort of alerts them, oh shit, something's going on. They hear rustling in the bushes. And then they start to hear snip, snip, snip. They hear wire cutters being used to cut into barbed wire. And at this point, these two men then know, oh shit, the Germans are here and they're trying to cut through our barbed wire and they're going to make a raid on our trench. We have to do something. So they go fucking ape shit and these two men start you know basically a combat maneuver against what turned out to be 24 german men probably between 20 and 24 uh german men were in this raiding party and these two guys fought off these 24 german men despite having been shot and stabbed and beaten and wounded they used their own you know, adrenaline-fueled savagery to fight off these German men uh, to the point where where Johnson, Henry Johnson, was using a fucking bolo knife like he was Crocodile Dundee just going around stabbing at guys, and the Germans were absolutely, you know, wide-eyed about how insane the entire situation was. They could not understand that that these men were fighting back against them so fiercely. And I'll read a quote here really quick um, that was written about this particular incident that shows, you know, sort of the, 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 what the Germans may have been thinking. Quote, The Germans, doubtless thinking it was a host, instead of two brave colored boys fighting like tigers at bay, picked up their dead and wounded and slunk away, leaving many weapons and part of their shot-riddled clothing and leaving a trail of blood which we followed at dawn near to their lines, which was uh, written by our own Colonel Hayward. Uh, quote, so it was in this way the Germans found the black Americans. So they were absolutely stunned at just two guys, just two dudes hanging out in a foxhole, fought off two dozen German men, and it made them extremely famous, especially in France. And in fact... These two men were the first Americans to be decorated by the French for their service, where they received the uh, the very the very prestigious uh, Croix de Guerre. Hopefully, my French is is decent there. Um, it's it's the highest honor that any man serving in the French army could be given. So uh, these guys these guys are seeing combat. For 191 straight days, they do shit like sit in a foxhole, two dudes, and fight off two dozen Germans. They spent the most time in combat of any American unit. They never lost a foot of ground the entire time they fought in the trenches. 
And finally, as they went home, Colonel Hayward, the man who always had their back, he made goddamn sure that when they got back to the United States, that they were given a hero's welcome. And they were. Hundreds of thousands of citizens lined up in New York City on Fifth Avenue to shower these men with coins and flowers and chocolate and confetti and all the stuff you get with a parade. And I'll read another excerpt here really quick that sort of sums up that particular um, hero's welcome. Quote, up the wide avenue they swung. Their smiles outshone the golden sunlight. In every line, proud chests expanded beneath the medals Valor had won. The impassioned cheering of the crowds massed along the way drowned the blaring cadence of their former jazz band. The old 15th was on parade, and New York turned out to tender its dark-skinned heroes a New York welcome. It's amazing. It's the unit that they had thrown away like, like, like any man's trash came home to a hero's welcome, being the, in my opinion, the most effective American fighting force in World War I. More effective than any other ground force that the United States put out in a war that they were basically barely involved in, to be completely honest. So, did this solve racism in the country? The answer, if you are any person who paid attention to anything ever, is of course, no. Of course not. And it is so unfortunate. This is the perfect example, if anybody with half a goddamn brain would see, that these black men gave up many, you know, of their their brothers' lives in the fight against the tyranny of this common enemy in, you know, the German Empire. And despite their valor in combat, despite being so good at fighting, despite being given the highest honors in the French army, these guys were given this hero's welcome of a parade and then very quickly forgotten about. So much so that Henry Johnson, the aforementioned Henry Johnson, the man who received that medal in France, who had come home to this hero's welcome down Fifth Avenue, sits in his home and, by the way, by the way, our dude Theodore Roosevelt, my guy, episode one of my podcast's heroes, called Henry Johnson, quote, one of the five bravest Americans to ever serve in war. That is high praise. So Mr. Top Five Bravest Men to Serve uh, the Americas in War couldn't even, couldn't even support himself after he came home because the army refused refused to note his injuries, of which he had very many, especially from that, uh, that attack of, from the Germans during uh, that very famous incident, did not note any of his injuries on his discharge papers, which left him totally ineligible for disabilities and ineligible to receive any medals, despite being a war hero. Johnson's life unfortunately spiraled into alcoholism and poverty, his family left him, and he died without a penny to his name at age 32, a little more than 10 years after he had single-handedly fought off an entire troop of Germans with his buddy. You know, it was just, it's outrageous. It took until 1996 
when Bill Clinton finally awarded Johnson and Needham Roberts with Purple Hearts. And it took all the way then till 2015 when President Barack Obama awarded Mr. Johnson with a posthumous Medal of Honor. These two men were long dead and they were heroes and they were never given their heroes due. They did everything that any man ever did in service of their country, but they were completely discarded as if they didn't do a goddamn thing and that they didn't deserve what other men deserved for doing acts of valor just like them. So I'll I'll end this particular episode before we go into our fact of the day, quoting President Obama when he was giving the twenty fifth in twenty fifteen that posthumous Medal of Honor to Mr. Johnson. He said, "It's never too late to say thank you." And now for your non sequitur fact of the week. Apparently, the word almost, A-L-M-O-S-T, is the longest word in the English language that is also alphabetical from front to back. So yeah, that's interesting. Also, I look forward to somebody literally disproving me on that fact immediately. Although, so far, and I looked for a while, I could not find a longer word alphabetically front to back as the word Almost. Huh. Neat. And thus, we end Season 2, Episode 1 of the Knowledge from the Couch podcast on the Harlem Hellfighters. Guys, thank you so much for listening to the show. You can follow me at Kyle Steinhauser on Twitter. You can follow the show on Twitter at the Couch Pod. You can find us on Facebook, search Knowledge from the Couch Podcast. We are all over the place there as well. And you can follow me personally on Instagram if you would like to, at Kyle F. Steinhauser. Now, as I said, and I'm not going to break that tradition yet, I'm going to read another review that this podcast has received. And I will read it now verbatim. And I would encourage uh, all of everyone to leave a review and rate the show on your podcast app. I know that Stitcher, I haven't found a way to leave a review on Stitcher on the app, but you can do it on the desktop. You can also very much do it in the app for Apple Podcasts. It just takes a couple days, three, four, five days for it to proc over to me, but it can be done, and I say it should be done. So this review is titled, I actually like history now, exclamation point. I always hated my history classes. They were filled with distant dates, random people, and background stories that were just not interesting. However, listening to this podcast has actually interested me in multiple different aspects of history and history. Kyle does a great job of pulling in the listener by sharing interesting and true information. <laughs> He also adds a little splash of colorful language that really makes me happy. You will definitely enjoy this podcast. And if you don't, just try listening to another episode, Winky Face. There you go. That says it all, I think, more than I ever could. If you don't like the podcast, goddammit, just listen to another episode, Wink. Guys, that's all for me for this week. Next week 
in our continuing series on Black History Month uh, on amazing figures in black history, we will be talking about pilot and amazing woman Bessie Coleman. Until then, you guys, please continue to listen. Tell your friends about the show. Rate and review. Do all the fun stuff. And until then, guys, I will talk to you later. Oh, 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 o